Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Welcome, ladies. Can you please introduce yourself to the audience? I'm Patricia Chartier, and uh, I'm with Ghost Gurney, and really thrilled to be there. Hi there. My name is Sandra Hughes, and I'm one of uh, the three founders of the Ghost Gurney Project. Thank you both for joining us. I get a lot of enjoyment out of your content. We'll link everybody back to the many, many social media feeds that you folks have. But for those who have not yet discovered you, can you just broadly explain what is Ghost Gurney? Well, maybe I could start off with talking about, uh, let's say, the roots. The three of us, the, uh, our other uh, partner in crime here is Katie. Uh, she's actually the one who came up with the ghost gurney idea. But we met through um, a, another activist organization called Not One Seat. We were working uh, before the uh, last provincial election to unite the progress, uh, progressive vote to keep Doug Ford out of office. Unfortunately, not terribly successful, but the great success for us has been meeting one another, finding uh, common ground in this healthcare issue, figuring out as we go along, um, you know, what we can do about it. Katie, again, she came up with the uh, ghost gurney idea. She spent, I think, about two or three months trying to uh, source a gurney. It's it's very old. It's very heavy. It is, you know, it's old timey stuff. But she found it, painted it up white, and um, it is striking. Pat, maybe you should say what you've named her. Gertrude. And uh, she weighs a ton. There's no getting around that. In retrospect, if we could have gone for like ghost stethoscope or something, it would have been a lot easier on us because she's heavy to lug around. But uh, we do love her, and um, she's a, a quite a moving symbol of the possible demise of public health care. And we think she's, um, she's very pivotal to the work we do and keeping us grounded. <laughs> yeah, they, it, as Pat's saying, very striking. You know, we have trundled. Uh, her around the city of Toronto and this past summer out to um, southwest uh, Ontario, Perth and Bruce, Huron counties, because there have been uh, so many ER closures there. We wanted to go and talk to the folks there. Um, so we've brought her not all around the province, but uh, for, for us fairly far and wide because she is difficult. She's a diva. <laughs> Although a stethoscope would be easier, it wouldn't nearly be as poignant. Exactly. Very true. So maybe there's someone out there that doesn't know what a gurney is. Picture hallway medicine. You see people lined up in the hall on the movable stretchers that paramedics will bring in, that nurses and other healthcare staff move patients around in. And social media feeds have no shortage of people with their loved ones lining the hospital. So Patricia, like you say, possible demise. I say the closure of ERs mm. is a demise in itself. Definitely. Right. And just recently 
we see a report where 11,000 people in Ontario have died waiting for health care, either scans or surgery. I myself just posted up. Uh, I never share personal stuff on Twitter because, you know, the hellhole that it is. Mm -hmm. But I was enraged and I posted up something about my partner here has waited two years for an MRI appointment. By the time he gets his appointment, it'll be two years and in excruciating pain, you know, like epidural, nerve burning, whatever pain meds they can try pain like it's urgent and it's two years it's terrible and the disbelief that I got in the replies like mostly not like most people understood had been through the experience of waiting you know 18 hours in an ER whatever has happened to them so there was a lot of support there but there were a lot of people in my feed that were like there's just no way but you guys, you tell these stories every day through your work. Why did you choose storytelling? Statistics are one thing. You know, listening to uh, politicians is another thing. Um, it's got you. Got to find a way for it to hit home. Got to find a way for people to uh, realize that if if not themselves, you know, this could happen to a family member. This might be happening to my, to our next door neighbor. It's easy to, you know, you're healthy, you're not currently having to avail yourself of the healthcare system, and you assume that everything's fine, because we've been told all our lives that we have this, the most wonderful, universal healthcare system in the world. It's it's a myth that we, that we all have bought into, and, you know, COVID... Uh, not simply COVID, you know, uh, there's certainly lots of people that know uh, the difficulties of the system before COVID and have been fighting for it, Ontario Health Coalition being one of them. But, you know, COVID has laid it bare and, and, and laid the groundwork for the opportunists. Mm -hmm. But the people, people need to, got to feel it close to home, uh, I think is why, why I do it. What about you, Pat? I think it's also essential that all the information not be top-down because it seems to me we're in a very top-down society now politically mm -hmm. and that people have lost their sense of agency and by going out and offering people a microphone and saying you don't have to just listen you can speak you can do something, even if you're just speaking for a minute. You're doing something, you're raising your voice. And I think that's utterly essential to making a better world. The people that uh, we have spoken to, you know, either working within the system or have their own experiences, their family members' experiences, or just, you know, the, the, the idea uh, the, the notion of universal health care. They're, so, they're just so passionate about it. I, I love talking to these folks because they, again, they're very, they're very passionate. They are so um, relieved almost to be able to just get, the, get their stories out. So, you know, it is, it, it's often life and death. So, you know, they mm -hmm. can feel like they they're just screaming into the into the ether and this gives them um a little bit of hope i hope yeah there was one person we interviewed in southwestern ontario and i think it was almost like a therapy session for her although she did all the speaking but she was speaking from the heart about the death of her mother 
during COVID, and it was heartbreaking. Anyone who knows older people uh, or loves older people, it would be very easy to listen to this woman's story and realize, shit, you know, that's a travesty and a tragedy, and it really does happen. See, you both answered one of the questions I was going to ask you about how you get people to get in front of the camera and share such personal stories that, like, really personal, especially if you're talking about your own health care or, like you just described, the death of your mother. Mm -hmm. But you answered that in the self-agency that it provides or the therapy, and I should have known that. Because as an organizer, I, I know that when you create a space and allow as many people to talk as possible, that's when you get the most engagement. Like people are just absolutely dying to be heard. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm surprised I even had to ask that question. A lot of people we encountered, you know, they really wanted to speak. The, you know, a good number were comfortable in doing so. But an, a lot really wanted to speak. They want their concerns, their stories heard, but they were very nervous. Yes. We had to, there, there are a few people that we had to coax and uh, not a one um, didn't do a great job. Exactly. Not a one had regrets about having done it. And that is, that is also very satisfying for us. Yes. We'd sort of do for them what you were doing for us a few minutes ago, you know, talking us off the ledge. Mm. And uh, because we're about to speak publicly and be recorded and everything. And we try to use humor, too, to get people to speak, you know, remind them that we're not exactly, you know, Steven Spielberg ourselves. Like, you just sort of speak from the heart, and that's all you do. And that doesn't always work, because for some people it's just a bridge too far, it seems, to see themselves on camera. But uh, it often works. And Pat, is, um, she was, uh, uh, sorry, I'm speaking for you, Pat, but you've really enjoyed getting out there and, you know, at the grassroots level and, and actually talking to people. Very much. Uh, about the issues instead of, you know, just pumping out the information or the outrage or whatever on the social media and platforms, which we do which we do a ton of, but to Pat's point, we got to be doing both because it's important to do so and it feels good. I was going to say, there's there's enough room for rage too. Um, yes. Oh, God. But Pat, when we when we took the, the gurney, Gertrude, out to, um, you know, the ER closure country, we had, we had pre-organized a lot of people. And I don't know, what was it? Almost 20, that, 20 interviews, I think, that we did, Pat. So we, I think so. Sandra's an ace organizer, ace. Thank you. But what you were ace at was when we got to these different loca locations, we had outside of ERs, one of them we, like, I've been tracking what ERs are closed when. It's been shocking and enlightening and a lot of work, but, you know, I feel, I feel very passionate about that. You know, what is going on in this world? But we arrived in front of one, and wasn't supposed to be closed by what you know I had found, and there was a big, huge close signed out front. So, okay, well, we're going to film in front of that one. Anyway, we, we went to, I think, five different locations. They were all pre-organized. Uh, you know, a bunch of people there ready to talk to us, but a number of them were nervous. And Pat's, uh, the job that she took on, uh, was to prep people to talk and 
you know, just make them comfortable. That, you know, I guess, Pat, what you did is you made them comfortable with our intentions. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's funny that you are the one preparing folks um, <laughs> when I felt your hesitancy coming into the studio. And I think we often, <laughs> we always talk a good game, but don't listen to our own advice. I'm just as guilty. I almost hyperventilate when we're about to go live. So like ask my producer, it's, it's terribly annoying for them, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but I want to ask you about the emotional toll of hearing all of those stories. And you might use humor to make them at ease, but I know just from the work that I do, you know, we do weekly rants. So what are you most mad about that week? And you really dive into some issues. And just naturally, what I'm interested in is in politics, and it's abysmal. And we get what's called political despair. And sometimes that's just from reading the cold hard facts. You are getting a intimate window into, like, real lived experiences, mm. real impact of what all these closures mean, what all these cuts mean, what the move to privatization means. You hear all of them and someone's editing them. And so they might, you know, face that similar toll. But what's that like for you? Well, it is sometimes harrowing for sure. It's still a comfort, though, to meet one on one with someone and talk to them about it. And that's still... I find energizing because I feel I'm at least doing something. And if I'm at least doing something, that's all I can really ask of myself. But it is hard to get it on all sides and also to, um, you know, not drive my husband absolutely around the bend by ranting all the time. That is hard. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, you want to then unload in your own way, right? Like, yeah. You got to hear yeah. what I heard. You won't believe this. And that's right. I, guess I told him that on my tombstone, he could put my epitaph would be, and another thing. <laughs> oh, I'm, I, I can very much relate to that. Yeah. And yeah, they do get tired, but I guess yeah. that's what the ghost gurney provides for you as well. A way to that's right. make sure everybody hears this story, especially if they're going to be vulnerable and share them with you. You folks do a great job of getting traction. Obviously the storytelling approach resonates with people, but a lot of video editing and that can be time consuming. <laughs> well, I guess I'm speaking from my own inexperience, but I mean to put out a lot more content than I really do. And it's usually the video editing that slows me down. And that really is what captures people's attention these days. Mm -hmm. Who's in charge of that? Well, Katie and I do most of the video editing, I would say. Right, Sandra? Correct. The, the, where that stuff is uh, first goes to is to TikTok. Yeah, that's where I found you. Yeah, Pat and Katie do the editing for that. And, you know, uh, after that, I might have to trim it down a little more to fit on the on the uh, sorry, I'm I'm F Elon. I'm not going with X. I'm sticking with Twitter just out of spite. Amen. So I have to trim it perhaps a bit for that or break it up into a couple of videos to, to go on on Twitter. So, yeah, uh, Katie and Pat are uh, prepare it for TikTok. So yeah. it can take 
a very long time, depending on people's speaking styles. Because as you know, a lot of people speak in like a three-minute run-on sentence. And if you're trying to break it up into several videos, it's a, it's a challenge. And also, I think having to, it's a problem too, that we have to keep making things shorter and shorter and shorter, just in a bigger sense, because there are a lot of issues that you can't really explain so quickly and do justice to. So that's a real problem for democracy and not just for people trying to edit, edit that fucking video, you know? Yeah, like I don't know if it's attention span or what, but I, I get that, especially when someone's telling a personal story about themselves, like making the decision to take out a sentence or two, like remove words, it feels bad. I, I rarely leave any of anything content on the floor in in our editing rooms because I, I almost feel like you owe it to that person who shared to air it but yeah you've also got limitations for folks who haven't tried tiktok though the editing feature on that is next level considering it's free and on your mobile phone so for organizers and activists that's a, i think a great process that they have here using tiktok to get the content out there quickly as quickly as possible. And then, you know, Sandra or another teammate can grab it, repurpose that for all the other social media feeds that you've got to manage. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah, you really can find Ghost Gurney quite a few places. We'll link everyone again to their to their social medias, but. Yeah, our, our main ones have been, um, have been TikTok and Twitter there, you know. Uh let's call it afterthoughts with any of the other ones. You know, we're not pros at this. So, uh, lots that's you know, not social media gurus by any stretch of the imagination. And we've just learned learned a few things as we've gone along. And, great. you know, no, no budgets. Yeah, I'm trying to work on Instagram. I wish we had a budget to, to do it better, to, to track, to get the analytics um, in depth of what really works and and what doesn't uh you know twitter still confounds me sometimes as to as to what takes off and what doesn't what grabs attention and what does not as as we said i've been doing most of the the content on twitter uh short and sweet you know editing those tiktok videos i think would kill me so you know the the, the shorter hits on twitter you know, what I thought at first is you'd create, you know, build it and they will come, I guess. You put it, put the good, what we think is interesting co content up there and it will, uh, it will grow and really did not work out that way. So I started getting more, spending more time on, first of all, of course, you've got to engage other people, but just trying to find people that will, um, that I would think would be interested uh, directly in this subject or, you know, or, of healthcare, or they, you know, have a hate on for Ford or, you know, adjacent issues and just start following them and getting them follow, to follow back. And that has, you know, really the organic, I guess you call it, work at it, is, it has grown it on, on Twitter. So I started that in earnest before the uh, Ontario Health Coalition's referendum on um, privatizing health care, because, you know, we're not part of the coalition per se, but, you know, very supportive of it. With that, we really th threw ourselves into, the, into that referendum because we felt it was very important 
And so, you know, I spent a lot of hours on Twitter just casting about for people that uh, telling them about the referendum or, again, following them because I thought they might be interested. And, you know, we took a, a, a few leaps in followers over the last handful of months. That was one of our big leaps. You, you say that you wish you had a budget for more. I imagine there is a cost involved with already what you do. We've got a large province and you've been traveling around and there is no ER country anymore. That's everywhere, right? We heard Brampton is just telling folks to find somewhere else to go, even though they're the only hospital still mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the case across the whole province. Uh, all ERs are struggling. It's just that particular area up around Ottawa was struggling a lot uh, more so last year, somewhat this year. But for whatever reason, that southwestern Ontario uh, area is experiencing the actual closures, closure after closure, whereas you know, certainly, I mean, you're never going to find a GTA hospital ER that's going to close. You have the resources, you have the, the even though... Don't jinx. Yeah. It's, people are strained because of the state of the uh, staffing for hospitals, but they'll find a way, because of the pool, they'll find a way to make it work. For now. Yeah, it's odd we found about the southwestern Ontario hospitals, because they're all in staunch Tory country. So it seems strange that that they would be going against their voters unless they're just so completely certain that they'll, you know, continue to vote for them, even if they've lost their hospitals. But uh, I certainly hope that's not the case. And they were talking in one town how a lot of uh, Mennonites around there. So for for a lot of people with a car, okay, it's an emergency. It's terrible. You have to go half an hour down the road, which is bad enough. But if you've got a horse and buggy and you have to go half an hour down the road, it's really a day's drive. So to go after people in those isolated areas seems particularly cruel to me and cynical. One interview was talking about, uh, interviewee was talking about that. And what really struck me is, so there were, they have no phones, no buggies, etc. So, no, no communication with the outside world. So through the media, you know, the news, through us, etc., people in the area might hear about an upcoming closure of a hospital and they'll know to, okay, we're not going to go to Chesley, we'll have to go to Kincardine. But the Mennonites wouldn't know that. So they might show up at Chesley in the half an hour away in their horse and buggy and then have to pull out again and go, you know, I don't know, another two hours. In the wintertime. That's an important point that I don't think we made when you talked about how much work it is tracking the ER closures, that the Ministry of Health does not notify people when their closest ER is closed. No, they don't. Nor, I'm guessing, is there an active page for people to see this or else your work wouldn't be so hard. So just Sandra. That's incredibly dangerous. And incredibly. Yes. And not just for Mennonites. Poor people also do not have yes. cars and means that's uh, right. to just get up and go somewhere else. The Ontario government is tracking these ER closures for, uh, you know, planning purposes. Uh, you know, strategic planning, future planning, um, you know, what 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 are the hot spots? They are not tracking it at all. And we know why, because this this information, if readily available, would enrage people. And I'm guessing that is what you're hoping for. Um, ER closures, although 
very stark, very dangerous and have to be addressed. A lot of the work that you do focuses specifically on stopping the privatization of healthcare. And I know most of the audience, because we've said it before, we had the Ontario Health Coalition on, and we've talked about this with public education, that the formula, the neoliberal formula is to make healthcare just so unbearable, so off, public healthcare, so unbearable that private becomes a viable option. And I mentioned in the tweet that I sent out earlier, surely people did suggest that I simply try to pay for a scan in Mexico or elsewhere as though I have money to travel there in the first place or that many people do then to to pay for their health care. So I, I know everyone listening knows the, the pitfalls should we go the U.S. way. But can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly is happening in Ontario and Canada in terms of privatization and like why that is so important to focus on and stop? Well, one one key piece, and I, I let Pat talk about particularly Port um, Bill 60, but there already is private, uh, private health care, private delivery. Um, when Tommy Douglas was uh, uh, had the notion of Medicare and was trying to put it into play, doctors uh, resisted because they didn't want to give up any control. So they didn't want to become a part of the system. They wanted to remain independent, to charge what they will, etc. And they banded together against it. Went on strike. I just uh, I just read up on it recently. Went on strike. That Tommy out in Saskatchewan. That Tommy Douglas was able to wait out and overcame it and, and created the first Medicare system in Ontario, particular. I think now I'm now I'm aiming going beyond my scope. But, uh, you know, doctors uh, across the country have always wanted to maintain their independence. And so when Ontario was forming its system, and again, take me with a grain of salt here, but I believe that the, with Ontario particularly, the deal they made with the doctors was a, was a concession not to bring you completely under the uh, government's umbrella to become a, a, a government employee. You still can operate, uh, um, work independently, but you will be paid through us. Private delivery has always uh, been there, uh, in Ontario anyway. So what is starting to creep in is investor-driven healthcare. It's starting to be corporatized. It's, you know, it's starting to, what we've liked to, what we've taken to calling it, as, as we've learned more in the last handful of months about private versus public, is to start talking about for-profit healthcare versus private healthcare. So when the almighty dollar becomes too much into play, and it, and it will then, as we know, will become the priority, that's what the U.S. system is. Plain and simple, right? It's driven by by the dollar, and that's what makes it one of the worst healthcare systems in the world. So as soon as money becomes the overriding priority, then that's when we're all in trouble, and that's what's uh, what is at play now, big time. So yeah, how how Ford is facilitating it with Bill sixty? Uh, Pat's our resident expert on that. Well, expert's a bit of a stretch, but I have been looking into it, and I find it astounding how little attention this bill gets. I guess it's because 
you can sort of steal people's health care incrementally. And it's not so tangible as the green belt, which, you know, you can lock arms and stop people from doing it. And also, I think because people don't really want to believe that anything could happen to healthcare. Even when you talk to them in the street and they'll go, well, I know Doug Ford, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they don't in their hearts believe that something that we always say is the most cherished possession of Canadians is actually scarily in play right now. But in Ontario, the Bill 60 is hyper-secretive. I, here, I'll read a few things. from I did an infographic uh, on it. So it amends at least 27 existing pieces of legislation. It repeals two acts and multiple sets of regulations. And it was all done like that. They had two weeks of um, consultations and then resubmitted the original thing without a single change. So it uh, brings in what they call integrated community health service centers, which sounds sort of like community. It sounds sort of benign, like it would be just like... They're good at that. Yeah, they're, they're so good at that. But these would be largely self-regulated for-profit centers where upselling is allowed. It's built into the legislation that they can upsell, you know, like, you, oh, you need, uh, you know, cataracts done? Well, we can give you the super duper, you know, that kind of stuff. But Pat, those aren't upsells. Those are patient options. Is that not what the health minister calls them? Good point. These are... <laughs> That's right. That's, yes, lots of patient options. Like when you play a video game, they have that ad that that circulated. I don't I don't know who put that together where the patient's getting rolled in and has to choose which yes. level of anesthesia, but you could have one that works for an extra hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> That's and right. And we're already seeing That's people right. post up about membership fees to family clinics. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, there are lots of options. And if you happen to be, well, so very similar to the Greenbelt grab where Doug Ford's giving all this uh, land to his buddies. Uh, with Bill 60, they created a position called a director, but different from other healthcare directors that in the past were part of the ministry and as such are tied to the freedom of interest and conflict, etc. But the directors here are private sector. Oh. <laughs> oh, this gets better. They're not named. We don't know who they are. They, what? We don't have a clue who they are, but they have all this power to assign, to give uh, contracts with private interests. And the contracts, vast aspects of the contracts, are explicitly exempted from freedom of information requests by Bill 60. Bill 60 also gives to uh, Doug Ford and uh, directors, or maybe it's just Doug Ford and his ministers, I'm not entirely certain, the power to basically deregulate various professions. They, it's up to him. He can decide or the Minister of Health can decide who qualifies as an actual medical doctor here, who qualifies, they mention x-ray technicians, etc. So instead of you know for sure who that x-ray technician is, maybe they're not actually accredited officially in Ontario, but they have been, you know, here we bestow upon you. You are now an x-ray technician. So it seems it's the, the, the 
Corruption, the potential for corruption, is so baked into Bill 60 that it makes my head spin. Yeah, so what uh, they're doing is just allowing this industry then, you know, private health care, to just regulate itself, just, you know, go wild west with it and make all the dollars that you can. Some evidence of this investment approach, I think you guys lay out in a pinned video on your TikTok. Specifically, we love to shit on Galen Weston here, right? Who doesn't? Who doesn't? And we talked about their investment in housing, that they're becoming landlords and that really enraged people. And one of the comments that we got on that episode was, well, by the way, they're getting into healthcare. Just like the Green Belt, we saw developers anticipate Mm -hmm. possible legislation that would go completely counter to the direct words of the premier, we will not touch the Green Belt, we will not touch the Green Belt. He's also said, you'll never have to pay for healthcare with your credit card. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, you know, while he's dealing with developers, obviously, some folks are working with these investment groups, letting them know what's coming down the pipeline. They are anticipating this grab of our health care. Oh, yeah, they've got their hands open. The other bullshit about that credit card versus OHIP card thing is that it's it's true. A lot of the services will be paid for by OHIP at these clinics, but OHIP is going to be paying them a premium because the clinics have to make a profit. And so our tax dollars will be going to to the profit of these things instead of having those services provided in a fully public setting, which saves the taxpayer money. And they're going to be taking away, you know, we don't we're, we have a staffing shortage. So they'll be robbing the public system of staffing as well. So it's all, it seems, about destroying the public system and then just saying, oh, yeah, but don't worry. You know, you can get it here and it'll be for pri- privately done, but it'll be even better. And folks are already seeing that in nursing, right, where we have nursing agencies having to fill nursing gaps and then charging, you know, whatever, three times the rate of that, what a, a nurse working for the hospital directly would have been earning. So this is just going to happen on all of our health care. Can I just go back for a moment to uh, Galen Weston? Oh, please. He was one of the first to visit Ford when he was first elected in 2018. Uh, it was, I guess, through Freedom of Information uh, that it was finally found out years, I believe, years later that, that he had been there, that he was one of the first. And, uh, you know, so that was, you know, trying to be very, they were, they were obviously trying to keep it hidden. And... Uh, Galen Weston has had uh, Ford in his back pocket ever since, as far as as far as we believe. Mm-hmm. I agree. Oh man, the level of hidden shit from this premier. I was going off about it just yesterday, and now now Pat's got me all worked up about it again. Oh, my work is done. Yeah, and it's it's not that hard to get me really pissed off. But <laughs> the mandate letters. We've always known about the mandate letters. He's been defiant. Again, for folks who don't know, understand, a premier sends mandate letters. They're like instructions at the beginning of a term. This is what your end goal is. This is what I expect from this portfolio in the next two, four, whatever years. This is public information. Typically, he has blocked these mandate letters like to every level of court he can take it. Now we find out from Colin DeMello and other folks in the Ontario press who are thankfully really holding this premier's feet to the fire that he uses his cell phone. 
his private cell phone for public work. And this isn't about billing or being able, like this is, he's making deals. He's talking to people. We can't track it. Mm -hmm. It's not available to us in the same way his public record is. He spent his first term also destroying oversight. The OFL tracker is really good Mm -hmm. for folks keeping up on that, but it was endless. He laid the groundwork to do things like prevent things from being accessible to freedom of information or ombudsman yes. roles and responsibilities and environmental assessment criteria. I mean, it's it's been endless how he has eroded democracy. But people are so caught up and rightfully so in like dire situations like their ERs and their paychecks and their housing situation that it seems like insurmountable to then go at that next level that like, well, you're not even showing us what we, we don't even know what we don't know. It would be amazing if uh, for us, the media would start to do a deep dive on Bill 60 because, you know, I did some research, but I'm not a journalist. It just seems to me it cries out for really deep, close scrutiny of the corruption. I, I keep thinking, well, like 10 years from now, People might be going to jail, you know, but uh, it'd be nice if we could stop it before it gets too entrenched. Another thing, another angle that uh, I researched just a little bit, but to Pat's point, you know, we're not journalists. You know, we don't uh, uh, this. We're just everyday people that, uh, you know, are enraged about what's what's going on and and just want to keep even though it enrages us further. We want to keep finding out more. So I uh, found out a little bit about these agencies from uh, from my work. I'm retired now. Uh, but from my work before, I, I worked with staffing agencies. Um, they didn't tend to have generally a very good reputation, and you know I, I didn't care for dealing with them. But you know there are reasons for them to exist in lots of industries, including healthcare. But it seems to me we know how the use of them has proliferated in the last few years, and then the the, the money that's being spent on them is jumped by hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you know, our money in just the last year. So I started to take a look at a couple of these uh, bigger agencies, and they are different animals that now than what, uh, you know, your run-of-the-mill staffing agency used, used to be. Uh, did a couple of um, tweets on it, you know, threads to their websites. One was is named Staffy. One is named Helping, Helping Hands. It's very much... You know, corporatized. It's the it's the tech bros. It's the MBA types. You know, they have the connections. Albeit, I think Staffy developed uh, some kind of software to facilitate the matching process. But you know, that's really that's that's all that they brought to this table. A piece of software and you know MBAs, uh, chartered accountants, etc., that know how to make money. And that's really all that they've brought to this space. In Quebec, it's been uh, agency use had gone through the roof too, but that government is tamping down on it. They, they are, I guess, basically outlawing it now. Probably they're going to keep it on to a certain degree, you know, back to the level it was uh, before, just, you know, okay, we got to fill a week's vacation here and there you know, that kind of thing. Um, but not a peep, not a peep out of this government. 
not a, not a peep out of, out of Fort uh, Doug Ford. No, no way. That's making his friends money. Peter Feist is the person that runs Staffy. As it's described on his website, he pivoted to the healthcare. You know, during COVID. Before that, mainly his uh, agency and his software was working in the um, hospitality industry. Oh, well, that took a bit of a hit. So, okay, we're going from restaurants and things now to, you know, healthcare and and supplying nurses to nurses to, uh, you know, ICUs, nurses to ERs, you know, very specialized positions. But anyway, Peter Feist, his partner, chief of staff, perhaps for in the McGinty for the McGinty government or some kind of high up connection, and uh, the gas plant scandal uh, came along, and she, her plus Peter Feist, her uh, partner, brought him in to help uh, you know clean out digital files. So she was she was charged and convicted of a crime, whatever that crime may be. He was not, but he was a part of uh, cleaning up digital files with that uh, scandal. So I just thought that was interesting that he has had, uh, you know, how you, one wants to connect it to what he's doing currently. I don't know, but he's a sketchy guy and he has government connections. You sure bounced back from the gas plant scandal, yeah. You folks are mostly nonpartisan. Of course, there's people in power that need to be attacked. But is that a deliberate choice as well to not support an alternative, not to get into the electoral? You came from the not one seat. Is that still part of your play? I'd have, I'd have to say that uh, what... Really, we're about is uh, as far as being political is anti duck Yeah, and would that be fair, Pat? That that consumes us, perhaps. That's very fair. And okay, yes, uh, we are very anti Doug. And right now, I don't particularly have a favored opposition party, personally speaking. And um, I'm quite disillusioned with their top-down nature of our opposition parties. And uh, right now, I'll just do whatever I can to inform people and avoid re-electing the Conservatives. Because I think much of your work, from what you have described, and always correct me if I'm wrong, is about waking up the masses to hold whomever is in power responsible and and to to Pat's point, we need to just look to BC, who have very similar, if not worse, wait times for imaging, despite electing an NDP majority, which would be arguably the most friendliest to public health care, considering the history. However, if the populace isn't going to force the issue and make them spend the dollars there and do the work it takes to claw back anything that's happened, then it won't get done. So work like the the work that your team does, I think, is very powerful in that way as it when it crosses partisan lines and becomes deeply personal. You do include the cold hard facts, but that's right. That's what when we were we did a lot of advanced polling for the Ontario Health Coalition's referendum, which was really just a blast. 
uh, meeting people in the street and you try to guess what they would say to you. You could never guess, really. I remember I was at a poll and uh, a woman who looked and we were in like a, an upscale neighborhood and a woman like in a tweed suit, like looking very conservative and everything. And she I'm there holding a sign and she walks up to me and she looks at me and she says, Doug Ford is a piece of shit. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! <laughs> so I, she really, I, she really. You wish you had been recording. <laughs> yeah, she really had me fooled. But what I would often say to people is, they would say, "Well, a referendum's not going to do anything," you know. And I'd say, "But what we have to do is create enough noise about this issue that whatever party comes to." office next time, hopefully not the Conservatives, they know that this is a driving issue and they can't just have it on their, you know, further down on their to-do list, that we're passionate about this and they've got to get off their asses and do the right thing for healthcare. And I think that's really what we're doing. I'm so heartened to uh, see, um, to hear about the new Premier in Manitoba. Yes. Is one of his main... um, uh, platform issues with healthcare. Going to reopen the the permanent closed ERs. He's going. You know, we have to have a, a healthy, well province to function. That's that's uh, that's his bottom line. And that really, this has been a slog. It is very, as Pat's saying, we feel very um, finding people that like like minded people, ma- making a lot of people realize that you know. Universal health care is a bit of a myth, making people realize that they can't take it for granted. But it's still it's still been a slog. It's still, you know, we have our ups and then we, you know, are knocked back down through through this whole process. The latest one for me has been, you know, Sylvia Jones came out on Sunday. Oh, there's going to be a press conference, you know, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. Oh, OK. Hmm. Maybe it's something about masking. Maybe it's something about uh, covid vaccines. No, she's at a shopper's drug mart saying that, you know, now pharmacists can prescribe for diaper rash and canker sores, etc. Well, you don't need a prescription. You don't need, you know, you get all sorts of over-the-counter things. We know what a diaper rash looks like. We don't need any help with that. Felt at that moment particularly egregious to me, and I felt, I, you know, I felt down about it. Because of all the things you need, that is... Yes, and we're talking about canker sores. But, you know, I I jumped on Twitter and uh, enraged and that certainly felt better, but <laughs> it's 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 felt really dim on and off and I did in the last couple of days and then to hear of this new premier, I wasn't I have to say I wasn't too up to date on what was going on there. So this is after the fact, but I read a lot about it this morning and I thought, "Oh, Thank God. Sorry, one thing I would say as someone who's been interested in politics and active in politics my whole life is that for other activists out there, we women of Ghost Gurney, we just we treat each other with a lot of respect. We let each other, if you're just feeling like overwhelmed, fuck, I can't do this, I'm going to take a break. Well, that's totally good. Like there's no guilting out. There's no assignment of tasks like in other organizations I've been involved in. Like you're thinking, oh, you know, it's just we know we're in it for the long haul and we're giving each other space to do the things that we particularly are interested in and are passionate about. Uh, It's it's a revelation for me. Uh, I've never worked in such a 
wonderful setting as this. I concur. And that's why we, at this point, um, you know, we feel overall, even though I, I just said sometimes it just feels dim, we overall feel very satisfied with the work that we're doing. Uh, you know, I want to echo what Pat said. You know, the support is there. It's real. It's it's uh, no bullshit. And like the Ontario Health Coalition, we are happy to work with them. You know, we're happy to work with lots of other organizations, but at this point, we're still keeping our own, we're, we're keeping ourselves not closed, but tight. Yeah, I was going to ask you about, you know, 10 years from now, or how you, what your end game is, how you would expand if if infinite resources, but you folks sound just so absolutely, despite your hardships, content with your crew. We are. The way you first found each other in that kind of common space and have been able to lean on each other in this new project. It's that's a lesson in itself for sure. It's pretty great. I think uh I think what did you call it? Uh you called it a unicorn. Yeah, it really is. That's uh, right. It's true. <laughs> the unicorn, you know, it's what I've looked for my whole life as a political activist. It's it's there, you know. That really hits, Patricia, because we do a lot of work in a lot of spaces, but even though they're progressive, it doesn't mean that they're healthy or encourage the kind of growth you need or supportive. And um, we all do search for that that perfect team. Yeah. Right, Because this work you cannot do alone. No. If I may just say one thing about... Um you know, why I started to do this, um, you know, starting to pay attention to the conditions that healthcare workers, particularly nurses, were working under, you know, they were heroes and then somehow they became zeros. Uh, you know, I don't really know when that happened, but certainly Ford and Bill 124 contributed to it. And that was, I know quite a few nurses, and so it was very upsetting to me. So that was one reason why I wanted to get involved you know, being an activist for healthcare, but the overriding reason for me is for my daughter. So she is a type one diabetic. She had long COVID. She's thankfully seems to have recovered from that. She has an endometriosis and um, an eating disorder, and it's she has a very complicated um, health story, and. I don't, couldn't imagine where we would be at without, if, if she were in the U.S. Um, we are so thankful that we have a wonderful family doctor. As we know so many, I think it's 2.2 million in Ontario do not have one. Uh, we are so thankful that we have her. Ali has a couple of other wonderful specialists. So in a team, even though it's very hard to to be a team within our healthcare system because they're they're siloed, the doc the the family doctors, the specialists, et cetera. So I've been kind of the quarterback in the last handful of years for her coordinating her care, let's call it, and keeping things moving forward. But um, you know, I just I just don't know where she would be if we didn't have public health care, at least this reasonable facsimile of it right now. It's frightening. It's, it's, it's frightening to me that uh, what would happen to her, and obviously we know there's millions of other people with complicated 
health stories like her, and I, I just fear for them. I love the way you frame that because you use that term in your content, health story, people telling their health story. There's so many other ways you could describe your interactions with the hospital or with the healthcare system in, in an inherently negative tone. Sometimes it's those little things that help bridge that gap. Well, you know, there are... This is why we really got to fight for it. The system will work. It can work. There are great people that are working within the system. And we can get it so much better. Yes. And they're uh, people not motivated by money, people motivated by the work, by by humanity and people yeah, obviously, you know, brilliant people that that know how to innovate and you know these governments with their with their short term vision are just you know have got people's hands tied and we do not need the private uh, we do not need private industry to fix it bullshit when they say innovate they all, the government means privatize yeah. so that's a, a charged word as well but there's a lot of innovation possible more innovation possible within the public system <clears throat> and that's what we need to do Absolutely. That's one of the linchpins of capitalism is selling people on the idea that only competition breeds innovation and drive. And we know that to be inherently false. Right. We're inherently. cooperative beings at heart. These ladies are just one example of that. Can you leave us with a call to action on how listeners could either help your work directly, or maybe what they can do to defend healthcare. We try to keep our website up to date with you know, rallies that may be going on, with petitions, etc. Uh, updating uh, just content, facts, myth, uh, myth debunking is one series that we did back in the summer. Canadian doctors for Medicare. Uh, we I contacted them to you know, can you give us some a little bit more? They ha they have their own website, of course. They made videos, content on YouTube, etc. But I asked them if we could do it just a little bit more. Um, just little sm smaller bites of it, uh, a little bit more digestible. So, you know, can I come by and videotape you about your, your four myths about, uh, uh, about public health care? And, you know, we want to share it on TikTok and Twitter and all these platforms. And they said, absolutely, sure. So we've got um, these series of videos. We had to break them up a little bit. So there's these four myths. And I guess we broke it up into eight little two-and-a-half-minute videos and they're very informative. We're just getting those up on our website right now. So I would like to ask people to take a look at, at this kind of information from the ex experts, people that have been studying healthcare system, our healthcare system, healthcare systems around the world. And, um, you know, get yourself up to date on it. Because this myth-busting approach is great for the dinner table. So Thanksgiving is coming up. You're going to hear that bullshit spouted at you because people will just parrot the talking points coming from that machine for nation that you're competing with. And so it's very it's very useful to have those digestible points to be able to to what is it? Patricia's line. Well, actually, you know, <laughs> let me tell you this. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And the other thing people can do is we have directions on our website about how you can record your own video and send it to us 
and we can upload it and share it. You can record your own story. No one has taken us up on that yet. We always be the first. Great. So please be be the the first. first because, you know, we are just three people and uh, we can't go everywhere, but we're always looking for people's healthcare stories. Your story about what your poor partner's going through, my Lord. So, and there are full directions. And I would just say one thing for older activists such as myself, don't get discouraged with the technology. Like I will say, if you're 40, Editing on TikTok, sort of, it's a bit of a hassle, but it comes sort of naturally to you. When you're 65, it's like, holy fuck. So just persist and you'll get through it. And I'm even learning Canva. I mean, who knew? So, you know, you can, you just have to persist. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. And it's a really great way to get your message out and just help move things forward. Patricia's middle name is Persistence, Perseverance. She has, uh, yeah, you've learned so many great things in just the last handful of months, Pat. Yeah, that Canva video that I that's up there on comparing it to the green belt, that was the first one I'd ever done, and it took me probably 25 hours. <laughs> but You do start off slow. Yeah. I feel like we could start a Canva TikTok editing support group. That's right. Because I use both of them, but it's a learning curve. But And they say, oh, it's easy. It's easy. I'm thinking, eh, maybe not. But I know the next one will be relatively easy because uh, after a while, it does start to make sense. You go, oh, I get the sequence because it's all about the sequence, I guess. So um, so don't don't give up, folks. If you're older, you can do it, too. Yeah, there really is no ignoring social media at this point if you need to communicate no. with people. Being out in the street is essential, but uh, so is the social media. Well, I came up with uh, the idea of the um, learning more about the ER closures. And, you know, they just they just kept on coming. And, uh, you know, how do we present that? I'd like to be able to present that to to Ontario in a easy, shocking, one club over the head way that they can see, you know, what is going on. Like the, these these ER closures are monstrous. So I thought of a map, you know, just to show them all. I, you know, I had something a little bit more grandiose at first. Let's have a map. That's a video. It rolls and and the little pins populate the the map. You can see how it starts from last year. There hadn't been ER closures in the province before last year since 2006. And even then it was like one in a decade, something like that. Anyway, I wanted a video that would just show them starting to pop up and grow and grow and grow. And that was beyond my, we couldn't find anybody help with that. That was beyond my capacity. But if I still want something that is, you know, kind of breathtaking, and uh, I found that I could create a map I, uh, via Google Maps. They, they had the software. They had the tutorials. Um, and so I've, it took me time, just like Pat's saying. It took me time to figure it out. But I was you know, ready to put in the time. And you know, it wasn't all that bad. I got I to maintain a database now, learned how to do that. And just it's easy now. I find out the, the facts. I put it in my, my spreadsheet. And then I upload it. The point being, you know, I did not start with any of those types of skills. 
as neither did Pat. And when there's a will, there's a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And good enough is good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. I like that. Exactly. For forever perfectionist. I love that. You know, I just aim for a solid good enough. Yeah, exactly. I wanted my I wanted my little video of the map. I, I wanted the drama of the pins all get popping up and popping up. And no, I can't do that. Forget it. How many F-bombs did you drop before he figured that map out? <laughs> oh, no, I don't know. Too, too, too many. But yeah, you're right, Patch. You know, good is good enough. I need to yeah, really soak yeah, up yeah. some of your advice here because I can, I can hear myself in there a little bit or a lot. But Yeah, it's hard not to aim for perfection. No, I get that. But getting the information out there is sometimes half the battle we complain about hunting uneducated or unaware that the voters are and we surely know that Ford Nation won't do the job and really we can't leave it up to anybody else so I do very much appreciate the amount of work that goes into the content that I see it you know you only watch it for 30 seconds two and a half minutes I know a lot more time and organizing went into getting those health stories out there and getting those infographics and I I very I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And I will do my best to to boost it. And for anyone listening, you can find a whole bunch of links if you go to the show notes here and we will get you back to Ghost Gurney. So thank you so much, ladies, for taking the time to talk to me as well out of your busy schedule. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for your wonderful podcast. And it was also, I was scared shitless about doing this. And I was thinking, oh, please get a migraine. Please get a migraine so I don't have to. But uh, I didn't. And it's really been fun. So you're really skilled at this. So thank you very much. Absolutely, Jessa. It has been a pleasure. It's been, you know, it's just been relaxing and just a joy to have a chat with you. Thank you so much. That's one of my goals there. Thank you very much, ladies. Yeah, achieved. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.